Greetings and welcome to the worship services of Alamo First Baptist Church. I'm Brother Chris Rigby. I'm standing here this morning in front of our bell. This is the original bell that was at our old location uh, years ago. It uh, was there when the church was first built and it was always a call to worship. Well, when we moved to our new campus here several years ago, we brought it with us. And not too long ago, we got to put it up. We're so excited about it because it reminds us that we're coming together into this building to worship. And we are excited that today you've decided to tune in to our broadcast to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you will see the great love that Jesus has for you and the great love that we have for you as well this morning as we worship together. We look forward to meeting you and your family and we invite you to be a part of any of our worship services, our activities or ministries here and if you'd like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is just drop us a line at our email address, alamofirstbaptist at gmail.com. All of it spelled out, just gmail.com, alamofirstbaptist. We look forward this morning to worshiping with you. We pray God's blessings upon you and your family as we go inside now and we worship together. Let's go ring that bell for Jesus.
This morning, we're glad that you're here this morning, and uh, just uh, one announcement really this morning. Uh, the nominating committee has their uh, report ready, and we're going to be putting it online. It'll be on the church Facebook page, so you can uh, see who all has agreed to continue to serve as Sunday school teachers, and, and then those that are going to be rotating off committees and onto committees. And uh, we're going to be providing a number on that uh, uh, link there for you to call in and uh, give a vote to approve or not approve since we're not really able to get together and have business meeting. Uh, meeting, meeting. But uh, we ask you to call in and just let us know uh, if you approve or not. It is a motion and a second from our nominating committee. And uh, that'll be on there from Monday uh, to Wednesday night at the close of the service uh, Wednesday night on our online service that had come to a close. So make note of that. That's really the only announcement. But it is good. I know that we've got some groups that are beginning to kind of 
get-togethers. Uh, I think our, our youth have done some things. We've got some Sunday school classes that have done some things. And then also we've uh, got some kids' uh, activities, I think, that have been kind of uh, uh, planned or, or, or thought about. So it's, it's nice that some things are beginning to kind of open back up, and we hope that continues. I know that the numbers uh, on uh, the COVID has kind of been creeping back up, so we need to continue to pray that uh, we can get through this time and, and uh, the numbers don't get uh, to a place where we uh, have to go in a different direction, because I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I am missing the old life right now. I, I tell you, I tell you, I miss being able to be with you guys in a more intimate way, but uh, keep that in your prayers. Uh, uh, as far as I know, everybody's doing real good right now. Just keep that uh, uh, in your thoughts and minds. Don't forget you can give online. We've got the offering plates uh, at, the, at the doors. Also, there's an offering box. You can mail it in, 241, P.O. Box 241, Alamo, Tennessee. Uh, and uh, you've been real faithful, and I appreciate that. But let's have a word of prayer, uh, give God thanks to the, uh, for the offering by which we're able to give to him, and then also for the service today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for our time together, to be here in your house, Lord, to give praise and worship to you. Lord, we pray not only uh, as we are gathered together, but also with those who are gathered at home, those that uh, are watching online, Lord as we in one spirit lift up our praise, worship, and adoration. Lord, we do thank you for the offering that we're able to take, uh, not only this morning during this time uh, in the service, but also, Lord, through the week as uh, it has come in to do the kingdom work, to continue uh, to push forth the, the good news that, Jesus, uh, there is uh, salvation and eternal life to be had through you. Lord, we do pray for these activities that are in our church, the things that, that we are beginning to kind of slowly do and open up. We pray, Lord, that uh, the risk of outbreak and uh, infection with COVID uh, uh, stays where it's at, Lord, and that it uh, doesn't happen and we can continue to uh, get closer together again. We continue to pray for a vaccine. We pray, Lord, for a cure. We pray, Lord, that... We can get back to a normalcy of life. But until then, Lord, we'll continue to trust in you in faith, knowing that your good hand of grace is upon us. We love you, Jesus. We lift up this service to you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. It is good to see you here. I've been getting a lot of compliments on the, on the worship and just everything that's been going on at church. But I want to, first of all, deflect that to God but, and then also give a uh, just the... The credit also to the, everyone that works behind the scenes, everyone that's up here on the stage. So uh, I appreciate all the all the compliments we've been getting, but it, it just realize it's all all the glory goes to God. It's good to see you here this morning. Won't you stand with me as we continue to worship together? Oh 
One day there'll be no more waiting left for our souls One day there'll be no more children longing for home One day when the kingdom comes right here where we stand We will see the promised land One day there'll be no more lives taken too soon One day there'll be no more need for a hospital room One day every tear that falls will be wiped by His hand And we will see the promised land mm -hmm.
Father God, we do adore you. We are, hopefully, uh, filled with wonder, awestruck by the power of your name. And the Holy Spirit, as he's here in this place, Lord, I pray that everything we say and do and sing and think uh, would bring you glory. And as we lift you up, um, as we exalt you, that we draw others to you. Pray you'd save people today. Pray you'd draw people closer to you today. Pray that we would just seek to know you and to make you known as we go. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. You can be seated. It's not my life to live. It's not my song to sing. All I have is His.
God, we long for that day, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no one above you. There's no one beside you. There's no one near you, Lord. You are the living God, and we thank you that we can be called your children, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Christ did on the cross, because he won our victory on that day, Lord. And we just uh, pray for anyone that's here today or that's listening on the Internet today or watching us on the web, Lord, that uh, you would just touch their hearts and show them that they can be saved today and that you're longing to hear from them. We love you. We ask it all in Jesus' holy and precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, praise team, and thank you, Paige, for that prayer, that beautiful prayer that just reminds us uh, of how special it is to be able to be in the Spirit and worship our great God. Take your Bible and open to Psalm 19. I want to look at verses 1 through 16, uh, or 1 through 6 with you. And then we're going to look in Psalm 14, verse 1, and a little bit later. We're going to begin a series this morning together, and I really don't know how long we'll be in this particular series. Uh, I know that right now I've got this message this morning and uh, next week's message uh, for sure. Uh, beyond that, I don't know where all we're going to go. There are several thoughts that uh, God has in my mind right now, so... Uh, be praying for that. Uh, be praying for the message this morning because I'm going to confess that I am a, struggling a little bit because there's a part of me that's already moved on to next week and I have to remind myself sometimes to stay in the moment uh, that God has not jumped the gun yet to go to next week's sermon. But, uh, I've been doing a lot of preliminary uh, uh, research uh, and stuff on it. But the, the series is called The God Questions. And those are the questions that perhaps maybe you've been asked or questions you have asked that are what I call the tough questions. I mean, they are the big questions. And we're going to look this morning and we're going to ask the biggest question that really can be asked. And that is this, is God real? Is God real? And uh, I want to listen to what David says to us in Psalm. We looked at uh, the second part of this, or two-thirds of it, Wednesday night in verses 7 through verse 14. But I want to listen to what he says at the beginning. And here's what he says, and this is the uh, Psalm of David uh, to the choir master. This is uh, put to music. This is for worship. And here's what he says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the ends of the earth, or to the ends of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. William L. Craig wrote a book called On Guard, Defend, uh, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. And in his book, he makes a comment. I want to give it to you. I'll give it to you twice because I want you to really think about what he says. And then I'm going to explain to you again what he's saying and why he says this. 
and why it's so important. So listen to this. If God does not exist, our lives are ultimately meaningless, valueless, and purposeless, despite how desperate we cling to the illusion to the contrary. Let that sit for a moment. Let me give it to you again. If God does not exist, our lives, he says, are ultimately meaningless, valueless, and purposeless, despite how desperate we would cling to the illusion to the contrary. Now, let me give you why he makes that statement. He goes on and he writes and he says, If God does not exist, then both man and the universe are inevitably doomed to death. Man, like all biological organisms, must die. With no hope of immorality, a man's life leads only to the grave. His life is but a spark in the infinite blackness, a spark that appears, flickers, and dies forever. Therefore, everyone must come, he says, face to face with what the theologian Paul Tillich has called the threat of non-being. For though I know now that I exist, Tillich says, that I am alive, I also know that someday I will no longer exist and that I will no longer be and that I will die. This thought, he says, is staggering and threatening to think that the person that I call myself will cease to exist and that I will be no more. Of all the questions that you and I might have in life, there is not a bigger question, I want to say with more writing on it, than the question we're asking this morning, is God real? Have you ever considered the question, what if there is no God? Have you ever stopped and thought, what if God is not real? Now, I know you're saying, wait a minute, that's so unchurch-like and unchristian-like. But I think there's far more people, far more Christians who've had that quiet question in their heart than care to admit it publicly. I believe David had that question. I think when you read Psalm 19, as we read it this morning, that's what David is asking. That's what David is reflecting upon. God, are you there? You ever prayed that prayer? Are you real? Now, we don't know when David wrote this psalm. It might have been when he was a shepherd boy there on those Judean hills, laying on his back, looking up at that starry sky and thinking about the the awesomeness and the beauty and the wonder of not the universe, but of the God who created it. It could have been when David was a fugitive from Saul and old Saul's bloodhounds were chasing him from, you know, one cave and a hole to another that David was thinking about this. It could have been when he fled from Absalom in that rebellion that his son had, had uh, created and he was seeking refuge in the waste mountains of uh, the wild. It could have been when he was there in Jerusalem, there 
up on top of uh, his palace at night, walking and pondering, well, all the things that God had done in his life and looking up again at that starry night, that cosmos. We don't know when David was asking this question or thinking it, but he was pondering in his life at some point, is God real? David's thoughts lifted along with his eyes heavenward, and he wanted to know, the God of the heavens, how can I know him? How is it that he knows me? I mean, you look at the stars, it's hard not to feel somewhat, what, insignificant. We've all been there. That unshakable question, God, are you real? Now, let me ask you something. Do you really, 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 really believe that God is real this morning? Now, I ask you that question because you may believe something a little different than what you think you do. We've had fun this week. I've actually, Will's been my guinea pig, so he had to do all the test questions the other night. I've been reading, one of the books I've been reading was from a uh, British philosopher, uh, Julian Baganini. The, the title of his book is this, Do You Think What You Really Think You Think That You Think That You Think? And he gives a bunch of exercises. It's a funny book. It's a, it's a, a humorous book. He gives a lot of exercises to kind of explore to see if you think what you think you think, you really think you think that you think that you think, all right? Uh, he proves out, though, this thing, that a simple truth is that we can be horribly, tragically, painfully wrong about what we think, we think, that we think, we think, we think. You see, we can think we think something, yet deep down in our minds, we really think something less, or perhaps maybe something more than we think we think, or something totally different than we think that we think, or something altogether new in what we think we think. You see, I think there's a lot of Christians who, if you were to say, is God real, would say, absolutely. But if you were to measure out the realness of God in their life, their mind would be, look more like a question mark than an exclamation point. Is God real? By the way, this is really a message this morning that is going to be kind of an out-of-the-box message. We're not going to be just digging into an exegetical message uh, in the Word of God so much as we're going to be thinking a little bit philosophically this morning to examine what we think we think we think is really what we think we think and what we ought to think, all right? So we're going to be thinking out of the box this morning. And I want to say to you there really are two types of atheists or non-believers. And we're going to be dealing specifically with one. We're going to be talking about both. Well, the first one is what we call an intellectual atheist. That is those who have reasoned, those who have thoughtfully come to the consideration and decision that, well, God is not real. And then there are the practical atheists. Those are those who just simply really haven't really thought about the realness of God or really considered it in their everyday life. And uh, they just simply live as if there is no God. And 
Sadly, practical atheists sometimes can be Christians. By the way, the kind of Christian who is living as a practical atheist is really as dumb as a rock. Aristotle said once, nothing is what rocks dream about. Well, if you are a practical atheist and you just really think about nothing in terms of God, you're as dumb as a rock. So my advice to you as a practical atheist, if that is you this morning, don't be dumb as a rock, all right? I started to call the sermon that this morning. But I don't want to deal with practical atheism so much as I want to deal with the intellectual atheism today. Because that's what's on the rise. Those who have said they have thought it out, those who have said they have really begun to think about this God we come together to worship this morning, who say that he's not real. I want to give it to you, I want to give it to you young people particularly because when you go off to school, trust me, if you go to really almost any major university today that's not a Christian university, you're going to run into it. And even if you go to a Christian university, you're more than likely going to run into it even there. And, and today our young people don't know how to defend their faith or how to stand firm upon the word of God and say, yes. God is real. And I want to say it's not just Christian young people who's been raised in our church. And I I think I may have told you this last week. Three out of every four young people who are in church, in our youth groups, who go off, who graduate, never come back to church. Folks, those odds have got to change. That ratio has got to come down. We've got to start reaching our young people and help them understand how to think in a way in which they're prepared to face the onslaught of the message of this world that says our God is not real. Well, the Bible has a word for that. So turn over to Psalm 14 and in verse 1, again, David to the choir master and says in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I'm going to stop right there. It's rather fascinating to find that there are 41,173 verses in the Bible. One half of one verse is all that God gives to the atheist. Of the 774,746 words in the Bible, only 11 are given to the atheist. And God says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14 verse 1 and just the first half of it deals with what I want to call real atheism. Not with what we might call agnosticism. You say, well, what's that? That's just simply indifference. I don't know about you, but I find it very humorous that God is speaking about someone who doesn't even believe in in him. It kind of reminds me of the story that I read about where a child was raised in an atheistic family. One day the little boy was sitting at the dinner table and looked at his mom and dad said, Mom, Dad, do you think God knows we really don't believe in him? That's the way God kind of approaches this whole idea atheism 
in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. It's interesting that there are theoretical atheists, what we call the intellectual atheist, and the practical atheist. I heard about an atheist who was complaining to a fellow worker one day. He said, you know, it just burns me up. The Christians have got all the good holidays. They got Easter and they got Christmas. We ain't got a single one. And the fellow who went to church and read his Bible looked at the atheist friend of his and he said, well, I don't know about that. He said, I heard April 1st is open. You know, theoretical atheists, intellectual atheists genuinely believe there is no God. Practical atheists, well, they behave as if there is no God. And God right here is calling someone who intellectually, theoretically believes to believe that they don't believe that he exists is foolish. But I want to say to you this morning that the biggest fool is not someone who believes that there is no God. The biggest fool is someone who believes there is a God, yet lives as though there is no God. Now notice the the text here in chapter 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In your Bible, it probably says there is no God. Now, you should note that in the Hebrew text, the words there is are not present. They're added to the English reading, whatever version you've got, to make the psalm read a little bit more smoothly. It's important to note that because, listen, the fool actually says, no God. No God for me. Thank you. Someone kind of like sitting at the table And you're having dinner with them, and you say, would you like some salt? And they go, no salt. Thank you. Now, they're not saying there is no salt. They're just simply saying that they don't want any salt. And what Psalm 14, verse 1 is saying in the Hebrew is that they can't deny what they know to be true in their heart. They simply have just chosen for themselves not to believe in God. Not that there is no God but that there is no God for them. Thank you very much. It's worth noting and asking why a person who denies the existence of God is called a fool in Scripture. Have you ever thought about it? Matter of fact, the Bible says we're not to call someone a fool, but yet God does call someone here a fool. And think about this. I was thinking about it. The Scripture doesn't say that This person is simply mistaken. It doesn't say, well, here's someone, unfortunately, doesn't know any better. Compare that to what God says here in verse 1, to what Jesus said when he was there at the cross and being nailed to the beam. The Bible says what? He prayed over and over again the prayer of, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you, but it would seem to me that those who were nailing the nails into the, uh, into the arms and into the palms of Jesus would be a bigger fool than those that, well, are over here kind of theoretically or intellectually just dismissing God from fault. But God says, oh, no. 
the ones I'm talking about here in Psalm 14 deserve a bigger rebuke than even those who would have nailed or nailed my son to the cross. So I'm talking about something this morning that's really important, at least in, from God's perspective. And it ought to be from ours. Part of the reason I think lies in Paul's magnificent kind of exposition on this whole thought of the world's atheism. And I'm not going to read the chapter to you, but go back and read chapter 1 of Romans. Romans 1. You take Romans 1, go to uh, Psalm 12, put those two together, and you're, you're going to see that God makes it clear uh, that the person who he calls foolish is one who in their heart knows there is a God, one who in their mind knows there is a God, yet chooses to believe and behave as though there is no God. And the question is, why do they do that? And the Bible makes it very clear they do that because they are lovers of darkness and haters of light. The reason the person is a fool is that they are not just merely mistaken they hadn't just got something wrong. They're living in open rebellion against what their mind and their heart and their own soul tells them. Someone ever tell you, hey, be careful, don't spit into the wind? Now, you might do that once, but you don't do it twice, do you? You're pretty dumb if you do it twice. I mean, you realize what's going to happen. You spit into the wind, it's going to hit you right back in the face. And you got to be pretty dumb to do it. An atheist is like a person that spits into the wind continually. It just keeps hitting them in the face. Listen to how Paul explains what is happening inside the hearts of an atheist in Romans 1 verses 22, uh, 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, Paul says, ever since the creation of the world... In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. God has given us an extensive revelation that he is real. In fact, Paul says there are two things God has done. He has shown us his eternal power. And secondly, he has revealed to us his divine nature. And so the truth is that there is... No belief in God that isn't an intellectual issue, but rather it is an issue of the heart. And you could read Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, no God. Now, two points real quickly this morning. Number one, let me just make an argument to the intellectual argument that science particularly wants to make today and say that there is no God. And let me start with a story. I want to give you a story from a book that Norman Gessler wrote. He is a wonderful Christian philosopher. And he wrote a book, and if someone asked me not too long ago, they said, Brother Chris, can you recommend a book for a friend that doesn't believe in God to read? Let me tell you, this is one I would recommend. He wrote a book called I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But I want to give you one story that he writes. It's 1916, and Albert Einstein, y'all know who he is, don't you? Didn't like where his calculations were leading him. If his theory of general, relativ general relativity was true, 
It meant that the universe was not eternal, but it had a beginning. Einstein's calculations indeed were revealing a definite beginning to all time, matter, and space. And this flew in the face of his belief, well, that the universe was static and eternal. Einstein later called his discovery irritating. He wanted the universe to be self-existent and not reliant upon any outside cause. But the universe appeared to be, well, one giant effect. In fact, Einstein so disliked the implications of general relativity, a theory that is now proven accurate to five decimal points, that he introduced a cosmological constant which some have called a fudge factor. He put this in his equations in order to show that the universe is static and to avoid an absolute beginning. However, unfortunately for Einstein, his fudge factor didn't last long. In 1919, a British cosmologist, Arthur Eddington, conducted an experiment during a solar eclipse which confirmed that, well, the general relativity was indeed true that the universe wasn't static but it had a beginning this didn't make Eddington any happier later Eddington himself wrote philosophically the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me I should like to find a genuine loophole to it he said now although Einstein said that he believed in a pantheistic God that is a God that is the universe itself and not some God of the Bible that we worship. His comments admitting creation and a divine thought better describe the theistic God. That's the God of the Bible. And as irritating as it may be, his theory of general relativity stands today as one of the strongest scientific lines of evidence that there is a theistic God. Indeed, general relativity supports what is one of the oldest formal arguments for the existence of a theistic God, a God of the Bible. And it is the argument that we call the cosmological argument. Folks, we went to science there. Don't get afraid when science begins to speak and think that you've got to tuck tail and run. Because you cling to the Bible. We don't have the time today, but folks, let me tell you, the so-called intellectuals who argue against God have got so many holes in their argument that for Norman Giesler, who is a wonderful scientific theologian and philosopher, said, I just don't have that much faith to be an atheist. It takes more faith to believe there is no God than there does to believe there is a God. And as a Christian, we don't have to run and hide. We don't have to be afraid. Let me just give you some of the arguments that are made that Christians actually win when they begin to debate these things out philosophically and intellectually in the arena today. We win the argument of probability. Basically, how things in a statistical way happen to happen the way they happen. I mean, folks, it's not happenstance that we have the world we happen to have today. 
We win the argument of creation and design. When you, when you look at the smallest cell or you look at the largest galaxy, it is clear that there is an intelligence behind the design. When you take what they call the anthropic uh, uh, argument or the human argument, and that is the idea of conscience, the idea of good and evil and deeper thought, guess what? That points to a God. We win the immaterial argument. That, that, that studies the, the subject of love, beauty. I mean, where does that come from? If we're just some kind of uh, immaterial creation that, that, that has just evolved, then well, where does love come from? Where does songs come from? Where does poetry come from? There's something. There's something deeper. I love my dog, but my dog doesn't write poetry, doesn't sing songs, doesn't paint paintings. I mean, she wags her tail and she wants to be fed. She wants to chase a ball. That's it. There's something different with man. And that's because there's a God. We win the transcendental argument, knowledge, logic, and science. We, we win the ontological argument that God is greater than which can be conceived we win it. We don't have to run and hide. Don't young people think that when you go to school and all of a sudden you run into a, 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 an educated egghead that somehow you've got to cower in faith and, and be afraid to say, I'm a Christian who believes in the Bible. And I'll tell you something else. And the more I read and the more I study, these educated eggheads who go around saying that they are scientifically uh, proven to be true as atheists, they have not studied the Bible. They don't know what the Bible says and what it says about God. They've not thought it through. And I can tell you there are so many examples of where they have been caught basically with their britches down. When the word of God is given back to them in the higher level of academic thinking that should be applied to God's word. They've been made to look like fools in the public square. And there are many so-called atheists that just absolutely will not debate today some of the strongest theological Christian apologists that we have because they know they can't stand on the stage with them without looking like an idiot. But let me speak not just to the intellectual argument, but to what I call the spiritual argument that Satan wants to make. And that's the bottom line, folks. From the beginning of time, Satan has tried to deny God. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. Yea, hath God said, is he really God? Can you really trust in him? Go all the way back. And, and that's where Satan tried to trip up humanity. To tip the scales. To dismiss God. And can I tell you that ever since that moment, people have sought one of two roads in life. How can I get back to God? And how can I get away from God? You're here this morning because I believe you want to answer the question, yes, God is real. And how can I get back to him into a peaceful, harmonistic, whole relationship between the created and the creator? But we live in a world that is filled with people that want to get away from God. Why? 
Because man has a willful self-determination. We like to do it our way, don't we? We don't want someone being our boss, telling us how to live. Man has a wicked self-deception. Wickedness, and we're going to talk about evil next week, it comes from the heart, doesn't it? Where does evil come from? The Bible says it comes out of our heart. Man has a woeful self-destruction. Apart from God, we're on a course to destroy ourselves. If it weren't for God, there is no hope. Now let me close the message this morning. Two things. One, a deep thought into a story. Frank Turnkey makes in his book, his book on atheism, he, he, his book's entitled Stealing from God, and it's a wonderful book too. Uh, he basically says atheists can't even make their own argument. They have to steal from Christians to try to make an argument there isn't a God. He said, you know, that in itself ought to show you something. But he says there's one argument that people make, uh, or there, there's these arguments that people make uh, as atheists, uh, versus Christians. He says, but Christians win. And I already gave you one list. Let me give you his list. Christians win the beginning of the universe. The creations, uh, we win it. We know science. I just read to you, Albert Einstein didn't like it, but he had to admit there was a beginning. The fine-tuning of the universe, uh, that, that, that's unbelievable in, in and of itself. Do you realize, for example, if gravity was off by one one-hundredth millionth of a degree that life as we know it on earth would not exist. Do you understand that some of the laws of nature that, that are written in by God, if we're off by just a, a I mean, a, almost an immeasurable point that life couldn't hold together? Life as we know it has been fine-tuned that we can breathe and exist and live and atoms hold together. The fine-tuning of the universe, Christians win. The consistent laws of nature. I mean, the, for example, the law of gravity doesn't change, does it? You drop a brick from a, a, a roof, it goes down, not up. Doesn't go sideways one day. It's always the same. The law of nature and mechanics, the laws of reason, information in our genetic code, uh, intentionality, life itself, mind and consciousness, free will, objective morality, beauty, pleasure, Old Testament prophecy, life and resurrection. The Christian went all the arguments that atheists try to make and try to turn back as an argument and proof that God isn't real. Folks, we win them. There is, however, one argument that atheists make that Christians struggle with. And we're going to deal with it next week. It's called the problem of evil. Where does evil come from? And if God is good, why is evil in this world? And I will tell you, I covet your prayers. It is not an easy subject. I feel like I have been stuck in the swamp all week. Why doesn't God stop evil? I'll give you a preview in a closing story. I told you I'd give you a story. But it goes to the point that God is real. 
Everyone likes to ask the question, why doesn't God stop evil? And this is from Frank Turnkey. But few people ever ask, why doesn't God stop pleasure? Stopping pleasure would be a more effective way of stopping evil while maintaining human freedom. That's because no one does evil for evil's sake. We do evil to get good things. We lie, we steal, we kill to get pleasurable good things, such as money, sex, and power. Take away pleasure, and the incentive to do evil would vanish. But if God were to stop evil by ending pleasure, would the human race continue? And if the human race did continue, would there be anyone who would want to live in a pleasureless world that would remain? So let me say to you, if there is no God, then evil, as we would define it, is then free to be unleashed upon this world. And Satan and and Stalin and the Hitlers can just move without impunity. W.O. Saunders was a fellow who was an atheist. And he did a lot of writing. And once he wrote these words for an American magazine, and they'll break your heart, but they illustrate the truth and the point and the hope of this message. Here's what Saunders said. I would love to introduce you to one of the most loathsome and unhappiest individuals on earth. I'm talking about the man who does not believe in God. I can introduce you to such a man because I myself am one. And introducing myself, you shall have an introduction to the agnostic or skeptic in your own neighborhood. For he is everywhere in your land. And you would be surprised to learn that the agnostic envies your faith in God. Your subtle belief in a heaven and an afterlife. And your blessed assurance that you will meet with your loved ones in an afterlife where there will be neither sadness or pain. He would give anything to be able to embrace the faith and be comforted by it. But for him there is only the grave and the persistence of matter. The agnostic may feel life, uh, may face life with a smile and a heroic attitude. He may put on a brave front, but he is not happy. He stands in awe and reverence before the vastness and the the majesty of the universe. Knowing not whence he came or why, he is appalled at the stupendousness of space and the infinitude of time. Humiliated by the infinite smallness of himself, cognizant of his own frailty, weakness, and brevity. Certainly he sometimes yearns for a a staff on which to lean. And then listen to what Saunders says about this atheist himself. He too carries a cross. For him this earth is but a tricky raft, a drift in the unfathomable waters of eternity. With no horizon in sight, his heart aches for every precious life upon the raft, drifting, drifting, Drifting whither no one knows. Did you hear what he said? He said the atheist carries his own cross. 
Dear friend, I want to tell you this morning the good news of the gospel. The good news of the Bible is you don't have to carry that cross. God stepped out of heaven and took upon himself that cross to carry. The cross of our sins, the cross of our humanity, the cross of our fears, the cross of our worries, the cross of our tomorrows, the cross of our prayers, the cross of our what-ifs. God said, I'm going to prove to you I'm real. I'm not just going to prove it out in a starlit sky to you, David. I'm going to come and I'm going to be your redeemer. I'm going to come and you're going to know me. You're going to walk with me and talk with me. You're going to be able to put your hands upon me. You're going to be able to see me and know me that I'm real. Oh, what a God. Oh, what a God. Oh, what a God we have. I don't know who's listening, and I don't know today who's here, who might be living the question mark life. Is God real? I can tell you from one who has answered the question, yes. Turn that question mark to an exclamation point. I would want to live no other way. If you told me this morning, God is not real, and, I, and you could prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, I still would choose God. Because I don't know how I could, feel, how I could face tomorrow or live the next day without him. If I get it wrong, what have I lost? But if you get it wrong, what have you lost, my friend? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are living in a world that is filled with lostness and lost people and, and people who have genuinely put hard thought to the great question, are you real, God? And, and some, Lord, there is such an intellectual barrier to try to overcome that, that we realize that for some, they'll never do it. Some, like Saunders, that, Lord, even though they've thought about it, even though they see how miserable they are, cannot just come to your grace and in faith trust in you. But, Lord, we do live in a world where there were some that will be reached and where we can give the good news and the testimony that we know that you're real, not just because of the heavens and not just because of the sureness of your word, but because, God, we know who lives in us. And that perhaps is the strongest testimony that we have, that, that God, you are real because you live in us and we know you walk with us and we know you talk with us and we know you carry us through life. Lord, write on our children's hearts that their faith, that, Lord, what they've been given by 
faithful parents and in, in their faithful church to love you and trust in you is, is, is God is not something to be ashamed of and embarrassed of and, and to run from. Even, Lord, when they go out in this world and the world slaps them in the face and laughs at them and mocks them, that God, they know they're not small, that they are a child of God. And, Lord, help them to stand firm and to know that, that God... Not only do you have their back, but as a church and as a family, we have their back and we stand with them along the wall and watch and proclaim there is a God in heaven. And Lord, we pray for the one that needs to make a decision. Oh Lord, for the one that perhaps is on the fence today that needed a nudge by way of a message, by way of the Spirit, by way of prayer, that today says, my heart is ready, my mind is open in faith to receive God the truth. I don't understand a God that's so big and so mighty and so beautiful. But I see today there is a God and that God loves me. And I'm ready to take this old cross of unbelief and lay it at your feet, Jesus, and give it to you. Lord, whatever decision might need to be made at this moment in this time, let your will be done. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing. The Lord has spoken. You come. You come. I encourage you to be back next week, to tune in next week, uh, and to be in prayer. Uh, next week's message is, uh, is going to be a, a, an eye-opener, I, I do believe, and, and uh, it's a tough one. Where, where did evil come from? That's a big question. 
Uh, we're going to try to answer some really tough God questions. Uh, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering in the world? Those kinds of things. And let me also say, while I got you, if you have a question that's been on your heart or mind, uh, let me know. Write it down. Give it to me. It may be one that we do in the sermon uh, uh, because I'll tell you, a lot of the tough questions usually come from you. And, uh, and uh, you can help in this uh, endeavor as we go through this series together with the Lord. What are the things, God, we need to know? And, and we need to know and we need to pass to our children that they know so that the faith is strong in these days where we need it to be strong. God bless you. I love you. Middle school will begin meeting next week. All righty. And you close this in prayer, would you, Brian? I'll do that. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are so gracious to us. Uh, Lord, there's, uh, there's nothing we can say or do to ever repay what you've given us uh, by laying your life down for us, that we might have eternity with you. And Lord, again, we pray for anyone who, who may have been here today or maybe listened to us on the Internet. Lord, I pray that, uh, that you would speak to them, speak to all of us, to help us to see that we need to be walking with you, Lord, to die to ourselves, take up our cross daily, and to follow you. That is our call as your disciples. We want to tell you we love you today and pray you'd help us to go and, and uh, be a blessing in a dark world this week, Lord. We love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Mm -hmm.